Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey there, listeners. Today, Clarissa and I sat down with Dr. Ann Safi Biasetti. Dr. Ann has been a practicing psychotherapist for over 30 years. She holds a PhD in psychology with a transpersonal concentration and is a licensed clinical social worker. She is a certified eating disorder specialist through the IAEDP, a trained mindful self-compassion and mindfulness teacher, a trained polyvagal theory therapist, as well as a certified MABT practitioner and certified yoga therapist. Dr. Ann Safi Biasetti's doctoral research explored the role of self-compassion in eating disorder recovery. Her first book, Befriending Your Body, A Self-Compassionate Approach to Freeing Yourself from Disordered Eating, was released in August 2018, and her second publication, The Awakening Self-Compassion Card Deck, was released in December 2021. Anne's approach is not just about talking about your life, but rather helping you to take a step back into an embodied way to rediscover something new and different and to help empower you toward action and lasting growth and change. In this episode, Clarissa and I get to talk to Anne about her personal and professional journey, how she works with clients, the Befriending Your Body program, body image, abstaining and self-compassion, recovery, healing, and relapse, perfectionism, Psycho-spiritual growth, what is it? Do we need it? How do we get it? Resistance and our signature question. Welcome, Anne. All right. Hello, everyone. We are so excited to have Dr. Anne Safi Biasetti on the show today. And we're just going to jump right into the interview. So, Dr. Biasetti, can you share with us your personal and professional journey and how, you know, working on befriending your body became your path and your professional journey? Sure. Yeah. So, well, I will say that working on befriending my body took a much longer time than my professional path. <laughs> Let's start there. So the professional path really was, I'm going to say the easy one, right? Because it was your typical, you know, clinical social work path is where I started off. You know, I kind of knew I wanted to be in the helping profession ever since I was probably in high school and went right on to college in a counseling and social work program. And then went right on for my master's after that. And it was during those years, actually, of undergrad that I went through my own recovery. So I, I went through struggling with anorexia at that point and, you know, was a real perfectionist in school, got great grades and, and what have you, no surprise there. And it was in the 80s, you know, so I, I emphasize that because we really didn't know a lot about eating disorders at that time. And there was really no help. And even if there was 
my family didn't know what was happening, what was going on. And, you know, came from an Italian immigrant family and they were just like, what's your problem? Why aren't you eating? You know? And there was a lot of trauma happening at the time, you know, and in my family, my father passed away at that time when I was in high school and there's a lot of turmoil. And so everyone was grieving and doing their own thing. And I sort of found my way through. And I emphasize the word found because I look back now and I sometimes don't even know how that happened. But a couple of things stood out. And I'll say what stood out the most was professors in college who really acknowledged and saw my worth a great deal in my intelligence and my abilities. So saw beyond what family couldn't see at that time, right? And then there was a point also that my sister reached out and said, you know, hey, I'm worried about you. I'm concerned about you. And I love you. And that was also something that was different, right? It wasn't someone saying, what's wrong with you? You know, you got to get this together. You know, something's not right. Instead, it was compassionate words. And I'll circle back around to that. So, Slowly and surely, I started to test out a different way, different relationship with food. And then in those years, you know, it had gotten to the point where I was like, wow, okay, I actually have found a new way. And I started eating with regularity. And there I was then in grad school, and my mind was preoccupied on other things and then relationship and what have you. And I basically thought I was perfectly fine. You know, I'm like, I'm recovered. I don't have this thing in my life anymore and I'm perfectly fine. And then came, I was already practicing then, right? I started working and I started working a lot with people with disordered eating and eating disorders. I could kind of understand and, and I was, you know, certainly helping them along the path that I had gotten to also, you know, so they were behaviorally doing better and doing well like myself. And then I circled back around. So the funny story is I was in all girl Catholic high school in Queens, New York. And, uh, I was given uh, forced, I should say, we were all forced in senior year to do a yoga class for the entire year as part of our gym requirement. And we all thought it was quite funny, but I remember kind of being resistant to it and then loving it and then loving it. So I say that because it was back in my 20s then or mid 20s that I circled back around to yoga. And when I did that, the same recognition that I remembered at 17 in high school, I remembered what I loved about it. I was in a shoulder stand and I remember feeling like everything just disappeared for those five minutes. And I could be in a place that there were no worries, that my body felt still and connected and safe. And that same feeling was back again for me every time I took a class. And I thought that was interesting. I'm like, wow, so many years ago, but it's that same memory again and that same feeling. So I started getting into that more and more and more and spring forward, you know, I would say probably about five years down the road when I then had a family, I then had children at that point. And I had medical complications that went on after the pregnancy and birth. It really propelled me into my practice more in in yoga because, again, it was the only place that I remembered finding any kind of relief from everything else going on around me. 
And so what I started finding then, because now I had been a practicing clinician for, you know, 10 years already. And what I started finding out was there was something else happening after I left that class. It wasn't just that I felt stress reduction or relief in my body, but I noticed that my mind started changing its focus. So we didn't know much about mindfulness at that point in time. John Kabat-Zinn was probably just creating a lot of his programming and mindfulness-based stress reduction and what have you. This was in the 90s now, you know, and basically that's what was happening. It was a practice, little did I know, without any kind of training in any other way, no one even mentioning the mind, right? It was a practice that mindfulness started to take place where I could observe what was happening, but not attached to it any longer. So as a clinician, I, you know, my curious mind started going and I was like, what is happening here? Like, what's going on? You know, like, what is this that I could feel not so great still in my body? Cause this, you know, autoimmune condition that I had was still present. It's present my whole life. You know, I, I have this, but yet I was able to detach from it. Right. So I got very curious about that. And that's what propelled my whole path of starting to train in somatic work. So you know, went on to train then in yoga and yoga therapy, went on to train in mindfulness, went on to train in self-compassion. And all of that propelled me to go back 20 years after being a clinical social worker to get my PhD then in psychology with a transpersonal focus, right? So most people don't know transpersonal psychology. It's just a form of psychology that looks to higher levels of consciousness and the belief that humans have the ability to move into higher levels of consciousness for learning and for knowing oneself. And the body is one of those things. So I basically came along this whole path of learning so much about myself and about how my mind operates through my body that I knew I had to give this to my clients. I would be sitting there frustrated, especially for my clients with eating disorders or any kind of disordered eating, because I knew that they wanted to know how to be in relationship with their body in another way, and they didn't know how. And what happened in my own healing so certainly I, I started that personal path because of this, you know, medical condition. However, the leftover piece of it was what was left over in recovery that I never even knew, which was I had to learn and I did learn a whole other new and friend. I'll even venture to jump into and say loving relationship with my body through the gentleness that I learned to embrace it with and through compassion. And so the somatic work, all the yoga therapy work, along with self-compassion brought a whole new relationship into my life with the way I treat myself and the way I value my body now and respect it. So that is kind of the journey and why I've been extremely passionate in bringing this into melding the two worlds. As a matter of fact, when I went for my initial yoga training, 
the teacher would go around the room and say, what does everyone want to do with this? And my only piece at that point, I never thought I would teach a class ever. I had no interest in teaching a class. I'm actually a pretty shy person that way. I didn't want to get up in front of a room and teach a class, but now I love to teach. But I did say at that point, my only intention of being here is to meld these two worlds together, is to bring the body and mind together out in the clinical world, because I knew that that was a missing link. So for our listeners who are maybe curious about then what that actually looks like when you work with a client, can you kind of explain how that's different than the typical cognitive behavioral or dialectical behavioral therapies that generally are used with eating disorder, disordered eating, any kind of behavior change? Those are kind of the two that come to mind for me. So how is that different when when people work with you? Yeah, sure. So certainly I'm working with cognitive process as well. But the thing that I always uh, found very challenging, and I teach this to clinicians a lot now, is a piece that especially when we're working with, let's say, someone that has anorexia, there's a great effect on the brain, right? There's a great effect on the nervous system in all anything that is going to affect our behavior, affects our nervous system, affects our cognition, affects our emotions, right? We understand this connection. So what happens is a lot of times we're trying to work cognitively when someone is feeling completely out of sorts in here. And when we're anxious, and this goes across the board for anyone, I don't care what we're experiencing, when we're really upset, when we're really anxious, it's hard for us to think straight. It's hard for us to cognize, you know? So now we're working with situations where people um, have been filled with, you know, distress, emotional distress, physical distress. You could see it in their breath, right? They can't, it's, it's even hard to take a breath sometimes. And then we're trying to cognitively process before slowing all that down. So basically what I do is I take that cognitive process, but before we go there, I observe with my clients what's happening with their body. So I let the body come into the room. So it's not just my client coming into the room from here up, from head up. It's their entire self, right? So they come into the room. So I had someone yesterday that came into the room and and I could observe that she was breathing all the way up in her throat, up in her chest. And she sat down. She's like, oh my gosh, it's been such a week. And she started to rattle, right? What I call the rattling off. And that's all story. And I could have sat there and listened to the story and probably wasted her time, wasted my time, right? Listening to the story for an hour. But instead I said to her, I said, you know, I said, I'm I'm noticing, wow, that it has been such a week. I said, and and it seems like it's even hard to take a breath after this whole week. And she sort of fell back in the couch, took an enormous breath. And then I said, let's see what it's like to just hang out there for a little bit. The way your body just fell back into the couch. You know, what's that like to take this break for a moment? And for you and I to just breathe for 30 seconds together. 
just 30 seconds. Open the throat a little bit more, open your chest a little bit more. And she gave this big sigh of relief. And, you know, it only took a minute. And after that minute, all of a sudden, the chatter didn't even need to be anymore, right? After that, she was able to get focused into really actually what mattered about the week, not just what was scattered throughout. So, With my clients, that's really what a session is always going to be about is anything that they say, we're not just going to keep up here in the mind. We are going to investigate how those words actually even land in the body. Someone says that they had a terrible weekend because they binged all weekend. And, you know, I want to understand what does terrible mean in here? I know what terrible means in here and in the mind, it's all shame and regret and guilt. I get it, but I want to know what terrible means in here. How did your body experience terrible? Does it still feel sluggish? Does it still feel bloated? Does it still feel, you know, sick? Does it still feel like it doesn't want to be seen? You know, what's it like to sit here with me now? that it's Monday and you're um, maybe the first person seeing you after that and being with your body here like this. So, you know, so we bring the body in as a living entity in the somatic work and it makes all the difference in the world because we're attending to what feels dysregulated that's usually not attended to, you know? So a thought can be attended to, yes, but there's so much happening in here that people don't even know is happening. So when we bring access to that and we help someone bring access to that, all of a sudden they're like, my gosh, I can do something about this, you know, I'm not just walking around separate from this, like, oh, wait a minute, I can actually have an effect, you know? No, I think that's really fascinating because I know, you know, I'm in both like food addiction and eating disorder world, we hear that like the body image piece is the really the last piece, the ongoing piece that individuals struggle with for most of the rest of their life. And so to hear that that healing can take place, it just gives us that hope that maybe, you know, a lot of us just you know, don't always have, and we're more towards the body neutrality or, you know, the body acceptance, but never really thinking that we could be in relationship with body. Yes. Yes. Such a big piece. And, you know, one of the things that I just highlight a lot with body image, right, which I think is just essential and and a crucial part of the work, like you said, it's the last thing I hate to even call it the last thing. It is the forever thing. (laughs) And the reason I say it's the forever thing is because I like to share with my clients that, you know, we live in a world, right? It used to be, we could say just a culture, right? Maybe our Western culture, but our Western culture is dominant all over the world. So we live in a world that is obsessed with body image and we are the dominant controller of that image and what that image is about and the standard of that. And there's no way for anyone to live in this and not have an issue with body image. It's just the standard. It's just what it is because I tell people, okay, so, you know, if you feel like you finally got free, you know, freed yourself from a size, uh, you know, attachment, 
well, then the wrinkles will come next, you know, then, you know, then, you know, any part of aging will come after that. And there's, it's always something when it comes to the surface body, because these bodies change and they're meant to change, right? So what I tell my clients, though, the more important part about body image that um, if we're going to look at it holistically and look at it on a somatic level is image to understand what what do we mean by body image in the brain right i like to teach my clients what's happening in the brain all image is a combination of experience and perception and emotion and emotion so i like to give this example and this is even a little practice maybe that we can invite everyone into in this moment including all of us i ask my clients to consider to just close their eyes and to think back on their last moment of joy their last moment of joy and what that was what was their last moment of joy what were they doing where were they who were they with to just bring that to their mind's eye for a moment. And when you think back on that moment of joy and where you were, what you were doing, where you were alone with others, when you think back on it, I want you to consider, were you focused at any point on what your body looked like? And then I ask them to slowly begin to come back with me now. And it is very rare that in a moment of joy that we are stuck and obsessed and driven down by what our body looked like. If anything, what I hear is perhaps a fear beforehand, right? So in other words, people talk about like, oh, I, you know, wanted to go jet skiing, but I was petrified of being in the bathing suit on the jet ski. And then, and then when I ask this question, what about once you were doing it, when you were in action in your body, when you were in joy, when you were smiling, when you were laughing, when you were connecting and all of a sudden they're like, no, I didn't think of it at all, you know, and then it comes right back. Right. So what I like my clients to attend to is I'll never talk about surface body image unless we also pay attention to what was our emotional state during that time. So emotions will always fuel image. And so I have a statement in my program that I teach that we say feelings first before image. So even when someone wakes up in the morning, what's the first thing they're doing? They're they're giving themselves a visual image, right? In a mirror or something. So I want to know what feeling state is present with them at that moment, what feeling state was present when they first woke up. You know, this is very important because then we're starting to get to what we really need to get to, right? Which is if I hear my client is feeling you know, depressed and anxious constantly. Well, that's what we need to understand. And that's what we need to compassionately attend to, right? Because as we know, bottom line is I have a ton of people that will say, you know, here I am blaming this body for my misery. But then they look back at pictures of themselves, you know, when they were half their size, And they're like, I was just as miserable, right? We hear the same thing over and over. So what are we really saying there is that, okay, so what is the common denominator that's followed you throughout life? Depression. Let's talk about that, right? (laughs) So 
This is a big piece. Yeah. So is that like typically how your befriending your body program works? Is it kind of like, oh, it's kind of set this way or it's client to client, individual, this is what they're struggling with. This is what they need to work on. I know you have a book on it, but just in their like clinical work, is there kind of steps that you need to take while befriending your body? Yeah. So the book was based on my doctoral research when I explored the role of self-compassion in um, anyone that was recovered, recovering from an eating disorder and the role that self-compassion played. And the grounded theory, the, the research that was constructed there was a phase-based process of recovery. So it's how self-compassion really created these uh, stages of recovery that people moved through. So when the book was then released, what I started finding is a lot of people were doing the book together, like with their therapists, with their dietitians, nutritionists, or with each other in book clubs, that sort of thing. And they were guiding each other through the practices. And it very much gave me the information that something needed to happen in community with each other. So the program is based on the book, but goes a lot deeper. It's actually a psychoeducational program where people come together. So it's a group and we go through all the psychoeducational information from stage, each stage of recovery. So we begin with a great deal of somatic work and understanding about what that means in the nervous system and how we can take our power back by learning how to self-regulate in times of distress, in times of anxiety, in times when mood feels dysregulated. And so we learn all of that in the first four weeks of the group. We also learn this very big understanding that Again, as I mentioned before, that all of us are going to be struggling with things like body image because of the culture we live in. So we focus a great deal on understanding the sociocultural impact on body distress and body image disturbance that uh, is part for the course, right? Because this is what's out there. And then we learn how self-compassion can start to mediate all of this especially the great shame cycle that takes place when um, people have lived so long. Actually, we're taught to dislike our bodies, right? We are taught to dislike our bodies and we're taught to not live in them and with them, right? We're taught that mind rules body. And therefore, any vein we think that we think <laughs> should have an effect and be able to take care of everything that distresses us about this body. And that is not the case. This body is a living entity. And so we learn in the program, how are we going to respect it as such and come into relationship with it? Hence the word friend, right? So is there anybody that this program or this treatment modality that it would not be appropriate for? You know, I say no, it's a matter of what stage everyone's at. So in other words, uh, I'll just start with saying in my program, if someone is, uh, let's say, applying for 
participation in the eight-week program, and they are at a dangerous point, with, let's say, with anorexia and restriction, you know, certainly I would flag that and advise them to that they need higher-level care, they need much more support one-to-one, or they need to be in a higher-level care of support. As far as, so the program itself is really open to anyone that I have it open to folks that are struggling with actual behavior, you know, uh, eating disorder behavior, any self-harming behavior that's not at a life-threatening stage or state. And I also have people that are really looking to come in and they've been recovered for years, but they want a different relationship with food and they want a different relationship with their body. So therefore, the program is really open to everyone that way. As far as the somatic work or that approach that I use one-to-one, absolutely, I use that for every single one of my clients. And with eating disorders, I use it for every stage of the eating disorder recovery path because it's essential in the beginning, especially it's what I say is really the the missing link because we are prepping people to change behavior before they know how to live in their bodies. So often they come out of residential treatment and they are obsessively fixated on still a way to externally control their body because they haven't developed any information. We send them out to try and have a relationship with food, a different relationship with food, and they have no idea of what hunger or fullness actually feels like within their body. They have no signaling of that. That hasn't been redeveloped again. That hasn't been reprogrammed. And then it leaves people in a really dangerous and vulnerable state, you know, to then morph into different types of behaviors that are self-harming because they've been using these behaviors to regulate internally, but have not found or sensed what they're trying to regulate. (laughs) So basically my program and all the work I do teaches people how to find what has always been underneath. And as I said, if we travel back, many of them are like, oh my gosh, this is what I remember from when I was five. And it had nothing to do with food and had nothing to do with their body. You know, but rather they were the anxious kid, you know, that, that, you know, had butterflies in their stomach, you know, and, and those butterflies are still there, only they have found another way to self-soothe them. Right. So, so this is where I say this work is essential for not just developing this word relationship, but it's essential actually on a brain-based level. And this is the work, you know, that I teach on called interoceptive awareness. So it's essential on that level. So we work with a group of individuals that have to abstain from certain foods to be free from some of the harmful behaviors, such as binging, purging, obsessive thoughts. And so I'm wondering, how do you navigate this in the framework of mindful self-compassion? Yeah, and it's a fine line. You know, this is a very fine line because in the world of recovery, we really try to open the door to all foods, right? And we really try and open the door to no longer restricting or keeping away certain foods with the idea in mind that it will just lead to a restrictive lifestyle and then eventually lead to most likely a binge episode, you know, for folks that have had that in their history, right? 
So it's a, what I say it's a fine line is because I work in both ways with my clients, um, meaning that I want to investigate with them when they took this food out, when they brought it in, what's it like in their life. So in other words, I was just working uh, recently with a client who came to me and said, no sugar. And I know this is part of this is what you work with, right? And so this, so I'm just going to give a little disclaimer that this may be a little activating uh, for some uh, listeners, perhaps that have said no sugar, and that's the end of it, right? So I had this uh, session where we discussed this, but what we did is we started investigating what she meant by sugar and and how that is um, has not been an okay relationship with her. She has not found a place that she can bring it into her life with ease, right? And what we found out is that it actually wasn't all sugar for her. What we found out is that when she is in relationship, such as with her young daughter and with her husband, that she can share a candy bar with her daughter, or she can go out to ice cream as a family, you know, and that she does not have any of the activated mind, guilt and shame that she does if she has any of that type of food alone. So what I like to help my clients discover is, is this actually and I work holistically. So I want to know, is it is this actually a food that is activating both within your entire body and nervous system? Like, I want to hear what your body says about it, right? I want to hear, do you feel sick from it? What is your What are the signals? That's that interoceptive awareness. What's the internal signals that your body is giving you, telling you, yuck, this is not good for me, okay? So I need to know that first. So I'd say in my program and in all my work that, that we can't just vilify a food unless I understand that your body is telling you that this is no good for me. So I need to find that out first. I need to find out what's happening in the mind, how much activation is going on there. Meaning that if every time you take in this food, you cannot stop the cycle of guilt and shame, even if it was one cup of ice cream, right? Even if you didn't binge on it, did how much leftovers are there, I keep saying in the mind, I need to understand that. And then I need to understand what's happening on the emotional level, right? I need to understand, is this something that you are constantly feeling shameful about? Is this kind of something that you felt joy with and you were shocked by that, you know? So I, I have to understand it on all those levels before we can make what I call the self-compassionate determination, whether this food stays in or whether this food stays out right now, right? So I like to give this maybe a crazy example, but I give this all the time because I think in the world of quote-unquote what we deem health, and unhealth is really awful. I don't divide foods that way. I don't use binary terms around foods. But so out there in the world of, of health and diet culture, kombucha is supposed to be a wonderful thing for you, right? So here in my mind, I'm like, oh, kombucha is wonderful. At least that's what I read, right? And all the yogis drink it. And whatever. So I'm like, okay. Uh, I was on vacation one time with my kids and I'm like, I'm going to get this kombucha and drink it. Well, my stomach felt so sick. 
I felt so sick. So my body told me I cannot tolerate this. I was sick. I was, whoa, it was yucky. I did not feel good. I had stomach pain, this and that. My mind kept telling me, but this is supposed to be good for me, right? My emotions felt conflicted because this is supposed to be good for me, but yet I'm having all this terrible response. Should I just keep striving with this and bring it into my life because this is supposed to be good? Well, I felt really yucky. So if I didn't listen to my body, if I had no idea that that meant anything and I was just like, oh, I'm bloated, whatever, I guess if I just keep having it more, you know, I can get past that. But I don't bypass my body. That's the befriending part, right? So the compassion is, let me listen to the body first. What's my body telling me about this, right? And then I'm going to pay attention to does what's happening in my mind match what's happening in my body. And then where are those emotions? You know? So when this particular client investigated that when I have sugar with my daughter and my husband, I feel fun and free. That's very different. What she recognizes that if she ever has it alone, that's when everything gets flooded. And that's when shame comes in. That's when guilt comes in. That's when there's a big hook and attachment to everything that's wrong with it. So that's how I work with it. It's maybe different, you know, there's ways. So I do tell people all the time that self-compassion is protection. It's self-protection. So if we're going to answer the question about the body, once again, you know, someone once said to me, I want to be able to deal with the foods that I used to binge on. I want to be able to deal with them at home. I said, great. I said, you and I can, we can eventually get there. And she did, except for peanut M&Ms because peanut M&Ms, and it's not the food, it's not poor peanut M&Ms, right? It's the fact that she had such a long-standing memory and history with this that even though her body felt okay with peanut M&Ms, her mind kept bringing her back to terrible memories about that. And her emotions were all over the place. And so we both decided, is it life or death to have to have peanut M&Ms in this house? No, it's not. Are you a better person because you have them on your shelf or not? No, it means nothing in the world of what you value and what's important to you. And what it does have everything to do with is self-compassion, which is, that's not kind. Why would? It's like bringing someone who was really awful in your life to you. It's like bringing them around all the time and letting them live in your house, you know, (laughs) even though you know, like, this is really bad for me, you know? So it's not the food. So I make sure we separate the food from understanding the memory, the association. Now, if it is the food, it's the food, right? If the food makes you sick, well, then your body's telling you, please, that's not compassionate to me, right? So I hope that makes some sense in in the way I help people to kind of sort it out on all those levels. It does. And I just, I love the framing of it. So instead of, you know, we often work from that addiction model where we're like, it's about abstinence or at least harm reduction where we're aiming right for abstinence. And that can feel very binary and it can feel very harsh where framing it from mindful self-compassion to even just show up and be able to ask like, 
is this compassionate of me to continue yeah. to put this into my body yes, based right. on the information my body is giving me, which I think is just this beautiful way of, of, like you said, just reconnecting. Like you so often we live neck up and just reconnecting the rest of us together and going at the end of the day, call it what you want to call it. But if I put it in that framework, it doesn't really matter what labels are out there. Who says what about anything? It comes back to me N equals one. And this is something I have to do for me. I'm advocating for me. I'm no longer self-abandoning, self-abusing all of that. Yeah. Exactly. Is really where I want to go with you because I, I heard you speak about your thoughts on recovery and healing in the past. And I'm really interested to explore that a little bit with you, recovery, healing, relapse. And if you would just help us to understand, you know, how you use those terms, if at all in the work that you do, because I know they can become buzzwords and I'm just, I really would love our audience to hear your take on it. Sure. Yeah. So the word recovery and healing was actually something I investigated, you know, in my research, I asked people that question, what do you relate to more recovery healing? I asked it in my book, I asked it in my program and everyone kind of aligns with their own word, you know? And what I have found out though, is that folks that have chosen that word recovery, that right now they're still investigating the path. It feels safer to kind of believe that, hmm, could I ever be free of this? And that's really the question they're asking, you know, is this forever for me? Can I be free of this? And, and it's okay. I tell them on a compassionate level, it's really okay. That trust may not be there yet. And that's okay. Because I do work from a model of freedom is possible. And that's the model that the word healing kind of lives in more, where people understand that recovery actually just means healing parts of ourselves and that this isn't all of you, you know, that there's a, a part or two or three that has been dealing with what has created this disordering, but it's not all of you, that there's also a part of you that's whole and has always been. You weren't born this way, you know, you learned how to very effectively cope. And so all of those behaviors were skills and they were unskillful, yes, but they were once skills, even if they were skills for just a minute, right? And now they've been unskillful and we understand that. So healing is healing the parts of ourselves that we know has the potential to join into that wholeness, right? So those two words, I really let people discover that path for themselves or what feels right for them and when. But the word I don't use is I don't use the word relapse. I'm very strong on that. And uh, so I don't use it in the program. I don't use it individually. And the reason I don't is because it's so binary, meaning that I like to share with people the definition of the word, right? So if we look up that dictionary definition, it's, you know, a deterioration after improvement. And it's harsh wording. I don't like to use harsh wording. I think it fits very much into the critical mindset where people believe they have one slip up and that they've deteriorated and that everything that they've done before that doesn't count. And they somehow have to start over again. And that is 
a really unfortunate mindset to have in the space of body and relationship with food and relationship with self. You know, it really brings all the critical flooding back and it doesn't allow anyone to have an opportunity to understand that, you know, this path goes like this, meaning that there's going to be upward spirals and there's going to be downward spirals. And what I use instead is the word relearning. So this is a relearn moment. I tell them not a relapse. This is a relearn moment, which means you knew a lot. You knew a lot, right? That was, you know, helping you. You knew a lot. Let's list all the things that you do know. And this moment needs new information. So what I tell them is all along, you've been in the 101 class, you know, like in college, you're at the 100 level class, you know, maybe they've reached the 200 level and they've been behavior free for like a year or something like that. And then they have a moment that's really tough and they have a behavior again. I'm like, well, this is a relearn moment. That means you're ready for the level 300 course. So what are we going to learn in this moment that you didn't have in your pocket before? This is, you know, so as hard as it is to look at it this way, this is a good thing because if you didn't, you're going to relearn it at some point. You're going to have to learn it at some point. So here it is. Let's bring it on. And now we have another skill once we learn it, right? But we can't do that if we immediately bring in the critical. The critical shuts down all learning and all ability to learn. That's the end of it. It floods our nervous system once again. We can't think straight. We can't allow in anything the negative patterns. Once again, it reawakens all those old neural pathways. So we're talking once again, brain body connection. And where self-compassion, a moment that says, oh, that's right. You know, Anne told me this. I have to learn something. What did I not learn about this? Oh, maybe what I needed to learn is that it's unsafe for me to come home to an empty house when I'm feeling really lonely. That's right. We talked about loneliness and how unprotective it is for me to come to, into my house when I'm feeling so vulnerable and lonely like that. You know, the next time I have to drive and take a walk or I have to call up a friend, sit in my driveway for five minutes and call a friend first before I step into my house. So this is the kind of like, okay, what's the next layer of protection? We're always searching for what's going to protect. Yeah, I know. I love that what you were saying about the relearning process. And I just find it so interesting that in this field, you know, we deal with a lot of people who grasp on to perfectionism, yeah. right? Yeah. When instead it actually keeps us stuck and suffering. And, you know, it's definitely, I would say that critical thinking, right? And yeah. so how do you work? Where do you think that comes from? And how do you work with people who are stuck in that cycle? Because we certainly see it a lot. Yeah, it's huge. Perfectionism is actually a trait. It's an inborn trait. It's a personality trait. And those that, you know, tend to develop disordered eating, any kind of eating disorders, tend to be very high on that trait. And there's often, uh, there's two 
types of perfectionism. And one is a very self-oriented perfectionism, constantly high achieving for self, uh, self self-driven. And the other is what we call other-oriented perfectionism, which is performing for others and being good for others in the name of others in the face of others, right? So both are just as damaging or can be just as damaging because as you said, they carry along with them the eventual, what is it going to meet with? Of course, criticism, right? So they go hand in hand. And I like to tell everyone that no matter what type of perfectionism you're driven by more, the bottom line is anytime we offer choice and permission, you know, we start to ease perfectionism, right? So the same trait that can get people into self-harming behavior, because that perfectionism turns into the self-critical that says, you must do this, or you're this, or you're that, and keeps them driven in a harsh way to try and recover, right? Meaning that, I mean, I've even heard Oh, gosh, I I don't know. There's some things out there I'm not going to name, right? But someone recently told me about a book that uses criticism to try and motivate, right? Saying, you know, if you just call yourself this horrible name every time you're with the food and this and that, I just couldn't even listen to it. But there is that belief, right? And it fits with perfectionism that the self-critical, if this self-critical voice just gets stronger, that I could beat myself out of this, right? That I can shame myself out of this, that I can yell myself out of this, whatever it may be. And all research shows now. And the beautiful thing with self-compassion is, you know, yes, my research may have been self-compassion and eating disorder recovery, but self-compassion has been researched all around the world now in every single sphere that you can imagine, right? So it's a, there's a huge amount of self-compassion uh, research out there now. And we like to group it into the overall understanding that its overall impact is that it increases motivation. It increases overall well-being. You know, it increases someone's ability to try again. So this is all of the misgivings that we have, all the misinformation that we have, thinking that it's the critical voice and the perfectionistic voice that could, you know, somehow find our way through this. Unfortunately, that doesn't stand up to all the research that's out there where in where we have now knowing that self-compassion is the actual way that I'm going to say that creates a lifestyle, right? Because it creates a new relationship with self. So, and it creates a, you know, I like to teach it on the end of understanding what happens on the somatic level, right? Because self-compassion, when we learn self-compassion in a time where we are calm, let's say with a teacher, with a therapist, right? With someone that we trust and we're in that relationship that feels safe. And like when I say these words to my clients and they're in a safe space and they're calm, self-compassion actually changes the nervous system, right? So that the next time we have a distressing event, we can call on that. And so that's very important to understand about it, that it's a, it changes actually self, it changes a brain, it changes a nervous system. It's not just a feel good couple of words, you know, I like to have people understand it goes a lot deeper than that. Yeah. 
No, it's so amazing. I've taken now two separate mindful self-compassion courses, both for my personal needs, but also because I want to be able to bring experience to my clients and hopefully encourage them to go take you know a course from a skilled yeah. facilitator for sure for this very reason. And it was so funny being in this field of addiction since 2005 and mental health. It was always, we always talked about self-esteem and never about self-compassion. Yeah. And so it's just, it's beautiful and how like just to hear you say, listen, it's been challenged, not challenged, researched. It's been experienced. We can apply it to all populations and really everybody has benefit because at the end of the day, compassion is also fierce, you know, and it can, like you said, like just increase that motivation because it can also stand up and go like, okay, you tried your best. and, And how did that go? All right. What went well? What didn't go so well? How can we do it different? Now go do different, you know, and not so, not on those words, listeners, but certainly <laughs> the feel, the feel of it is there. And there's some real, I think this is the future. I mean, as I, and I know that that probably sounds really weird after just hearing you talk about like exploring this for the last 20 years, you know, or, or more, but certainly to know that times are changing, we're getting on board. And I think our clients can really benefit from this and our listeners. So I want to switch gears just a bit because we talk a lot about connection being a big part mm-hmm. of this journey yeah. um, that, you know, if you want to go fast, do it alone. If you want to go far do it together. Kind yeah, of mm-hmm. So can we talk just a bit about psycho-spiritual growth? Like what is it? Do we need it? How do we get it? Yeah. So, you know, connection comes both, you know, within and and outside of ourselves. Right. So, you know, we're talking about, I do believe it in, in my uh, book I have in chapter two is the chapter that talks about how do we receive self-compassion from the outside in. Okay. I call it receiving it from the outside in. And actually, if I circle back around to where we started on my own journey, when I said about those professors and my sister, they were my outside in compassion folks, right? They saw in me what I couldn't yet see in myself. And that is the first stage of compassion when we can't take it for ourselves, right? So why is it so important to be around others who you feel understand you, who you feel see you, right? Really see you, not just for what your body looks like, right? But really see you, know you, understand what your current struggle is, understand what you're suffering with. This is so important community, right? We call it common humanity and the self-compassion work. Why is common humanity so important to understand? Wait a minute, I suffer. Oh, you suffer with that too? Or you suffer with another version of that, but we both have the same feeling, right? That is connection on the outside, right? And that kind of connection starts to fuel our psychological growth and then can open the door, right, for the psycho-spiritual growth, which is that connection also then comes on a spiritual level when we understand that, oh, we aren't separate, you know, that you may look differently than me, you may have had this struggle years ago, I have it now, whatever it may be, that we are all interconnected, right? And how important it is to understand that, you know, in, if I could just share, you know, because I do love to share the spiritual teachings as well. And in the Buddhist teachings, we just understand it that, you know, the root of suffering is the belief that we are separate, 
from other beings, that we are separate from the earth, that we are separate from animals, you know, that we are separate from, that we are just separate independent entities, you know, and that is the root of suffering, right? That understanding that when we understand that when I suffer, you suffer, or if I think, so I challenge, I do a lot of women's retreats and befriending your body. And I challenge the women to leave with understanding that every time they criticize themselves or their bodies to understand that that is actually carrying on in their own consciousness every time they meet another. And they're like, I don't want to do that to somebody else. I'm like, I know you don't. So we have to start with ourselves. So self-compassion actually makes us more compassionate toward others. So when we treat ourselves kinder and with greater respect and with greater response and responsibility, we end up doing that for others. And so it's a beautiful interconnection that some people think, oh, does self-compassion make me self-centered? Not the least bit. It's actually the opposite. It makes you more observant of others. It makes you more attentive to others because you know what that feels like. You're in touch with that now. So that's where the psycho-spiritual growth comes in, starting with others you know, and that support and connection, and then really sensing and feeling what that, how that lands within. I'm just wondering before we wrap up here, I heard you say in the beginning that, you know, when you started the yoga practice, there was like some resistance there. And this is also something I feel myself. And I know many individuals that I work with also have that resistance. What do you think that resistance is about? And how do you help individuals move through it to just get into the practice? Yeah, sure. So very, very common. Uh, You know, the resistance is because the bottom line is it's really hard to be in these bodies, really hard. These bodies sense and feel a lot. We can't make sense of what they're sensing and feeling. It sometimes feels safe, sometimes doesn't. We also carry around a great deal of not just body shame, but let's be honest, body hatred, right? I meet people every day that have body hatred. I just had a client the other day who told me, you know, she did an MBSR class and the yoga portion of class, she said she liked it, but cried the whole way through it. And she said, because it was so uncomfortable, she's in a larger body. And she said it was really uncomfortable to feel all of that. So it brings us closer to what is and where our body's at and what it feels, what it's carried, what it still carries. And it's not easy at all. But what I like to say to everyone is, guess what? You are noticing that and it's uncomfortable. It makes you want to run. But guess what? Your body has been carrying that, you know? So your body is asking you to please give it a chance. You may think it it can't move because it's a certain size or it's been hurt or ill or sick or whatever else, but guess what? Your body is asking you to give it a chance. So what I like to tell everyone to do is just let your body show up. I tell all my yoga students, I don't care what your mind is doing right now. Just let your body show up here and allow it to be. See if you, you can just get out of the way for an hour and let it receive what it is longing to receive. And then you can see what happens. So it's almost like we're pulling the self away from the body for a moment and just letting the body 
have a chance. Yeah. I mean, this is a terrible example probably, but it makes me think of um, people who do extreme things with their body. And they talk a lot about, listen, your brain is going to tell you, you can't like long before your body will actually give up on you. Something like you'll be at like 30% capacity or something. And your brain will be screaming at you to stop. You're going to die, whatever. And actually your body can go so much further. And so I love that. Like just being able to like get like you said, get out of your own way, just let your body show up and let it show you what it can do. And exactly. as you were, yeah, I can just listen to you teach about this forever. And in <laughs> fact, I tried to go sign up for your course, but it's full. So I'll have to wait. <laughs> I will have to wait. And I know that your time is important. And so we're going to wrap this up. So the first thing I want to ask you is what's next and how do our listeners find you? Thank you. So what's next? What's next is I am growing the Befriending Your Body program, the eight-week program that I have in Somatic Self-Compassion. It's uh, growing where I am teaching and training professionals in the program now, and they're starting to lead the programs. And so it's starting to spread uh, all over. I've trained uh, just trained another set of professionals. So I'm really thrilled that that's happening. And you know, I continue my teaching and training in the Self-Compassion and Psychotherapy program, which is through the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion. So uh, listeners can follow me through my website, through Instagram and Embodied Life, A-N-E-M-B-O-D-I-E-D, Life and Embodied Life, and Facebook as well. And you can sign up for my newsletter because through that monthly newsletter is where I offer not just a teaching on all of this, um, different variations of this, but also offer a practice and embody practice every month. And people can also find what I'm doing either virtually or out in the community or with different organizations. And so it's a good way to stay in touch. And pretty soon I'll be creating a whole new website for the Befriending Your Body program. I'll have two websites and that website will have a lot. I already have a lot of free resources on my website now, free meditations and practices that people can just download and use. But when I create this new site, there's going to be a lot of other new and free resources that people can tap into as well. That's great. And we'll make sure to link everything in the show notes as well. So we do have a signature question and we kind of framed it so that it would be suitable to you. And it is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about self-compassion, embodiment, healing, what would it be? I would definitely say self-compassion is everything in this life and that you have always had it within you and that you just needed to find it again. I would say that embodiment is uh, central for living a free life and for finally returning to the source of your body, again, the way you were born, in that wholeness and feeling that and tapping into that. And what was the last one? Healing. Yes, that healing is a lifetime. That healing is a lifetime. That that is just an ongoing growth and to, you know, be open to the process of, to be open to being surprised because we should never lose that, right? In this lifetime, we never know everything, right? So be open to awe and open to surprise. And that is a lifetime. Yeah, that's the best part about what healing is, right? You're like, what's next? what's next, right? It's just more and more. Yeah. Just the human path. 
Thank you so much for being here. This has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. And I think there's going to be so many takeaways for our audience. And it's just been so rewarding for Molly and I to get to sit down with you. Thank you, Clarissa. Thank you, Molly. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours. <laughs>